This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Elite Secretary, A Definitive Guide to a Successful Career. And the author, Sandra C. Rohrbach, joins me from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jay. Extensive book, 272 pages. A couple of things that struck me. First of all, the use of the word secretary, which I know is a legal and common name, but in contemporary business, do they still use that term to identify a position in a company? No, they do not. Well, some do. I've, um, I've, I still hear it being used um, you know, in, in the 21st century here. So people refer to secretary still today, um, but certainly um, the reason I chose to use it in, in the book title um, was, was tongue-in-cheek. Um, they, you know, secretaries may be called executive assistants, they may be called office managers, personal assistants, but in the minds of the public, they remain secretaries, you think of them as secretaries. So it was a tongue-in-cheek play ah. of, of, the, of the title. The general consensus, which was a prejudicial thought, was that secretaries were at the beck and call of their of their um, company leaders or company directors, and they would get coffee, and they would do the fluffing of the pillows and other menial tasks, plus they'd type a letter here and there or take dictation. What is your what is your observation? How would you describe the current role of a person who falls in that tongue-in-cheek category of secretary? Well, first of all, that is exactly why I was spurred to write the book. That misconception about secretaries that that is all they do that 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 is that is absolutely incorrect. Um, I knew it was. I was just trying to see if you know you might pick up on that. <laughs> I did very quickly. <laughs> Um, that's precisely why I wrote this book. This book shows you the, the, the depth of the role of the secretary. They really run things. They, that's true. Um, they make things happen. They make their bosses look good. Um, they really are in the know. You want to speak to somebody at an organization that knows what's going on, start with the secretary, or as they are called today, executive assistants. They I, are the people in the know. They make things happen. They just don't get um, recognized for their efforts. But if you speak directly to their bosses, their bosses will tell you that they cannot live without their secretaries. They look at them as their right-hand individual. I guess I should reassign the name I give to my spouse as my secretary. She certainly runs. No. My, she runs. She, <laughs> she she runs my affairs that way. 
uh, other than the coffee. Oh, she does get coffee occasionally um, when I ask her, or if I do ask her. I try to treat her right, though. She's uh, actually superior to me. I, I actually consider her my boss. So that's that relationship. In your history, what is your background qualification to talk about this particular subject? Well, I started off my career um, at a very young age as a, as a receptionist and rose very quickly through the ranks. Uh, by the age of 20, I was working for a managing director of IBM uh, mm. in Southern Africa. And uh, when I moved to England, I, I continued um, upon that trajectory, uh, working for high-level um, oh, high senior executives in, in, in big organizations. My career has morphed into human resources now. I, I work as an HR officer, but um, the first 20 years of my career were as a secretary um, and, and a, a senior-level secretary for that, uh, for pretty much the, the latter part of my career. Your opinion of secretaries is high, and it should be, but you are also encouraging young women who might be getting into the marketplace or young men who might want to become secretaries that this is a great career path. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Um, people don't, don't realize that um, the role itself has changed. Um, it's not what, what you perceive it to be. A lot of secretaries uh, today are running projects. They are making decisions that, um, that affect the, the bottom line of the organization. And there's, there's a great potential for growth um, with, with, with the right organization. So if somebody is uncertain about what it is they want to do, but they have an inkling that you know, the field of, of, of secretarial work might be appealing to them, I would say that uh, they should give it a go. It's a great career. They could also grow into an executive director of, of a corporation, and really some of their roles do cross into that, that area of expertise. Absolutely, absolutely. There, there, there are many, many examples of uh, male, male and female secretaries that have uh, propelled their careers into, into something um, you know something that that, that that didn't appear or didn't seem to be possible um, when they started working as, as a secretary for sure. As you begin writing this book, 272 pages is a, a little longer uh, a book than I would have anticipated. I would have presumed that perhaps in a handful of pages I could have highlighted. Uh, the the career of an executive or elite secretary, you have taken great pains to discuss detail, discuss career paths and other elements of the career path chosen. <clears throat> Who did you write this for? What was the ambition behind writing this book? Thank you for those, for those kind words. The book itself, I titled it The Elite Secretary, The Definitive Guide to a Successful Career, and so I wanted to live up to that uh, title, and I didn't want to shortchange um, the readers. Um, when you look at the, the the chapters, they are very comprehensive. I talk about why one would choose this career, why would one become a secretary, and I delve into the reasons why I chose the profession and why a number of the people that I interviewed uh, selected it as a career path. Um, 
And then I walk the reader through the various stages of um, from, from the point of making the decision uh, to um, entering the job market, so assisting the reader with um, writing a very good resume, a secretarial resume, uh, giving them interview guidelines, and then talking about what to expect on the job, what, what does the job entail, what are the roadblocks that one might face, what are the day-to-day challenges that one might face. So um, my chapter on office politics is very, very in-depth. Mm-hmm. And who was I writing this for? For secretaries that are currently working as secretaries but are struggling with office politics are feeling as though what they're going through is new to them, uh, in which case I'm saying, no, it isn't. You just have to you just have to understand how to exist within, you know, what is called the dysfunctional office by others. Yes. Uh, you have to learn how to navigate about the realities of the job. Um, and so that appeals not only to the secretary, but to their bosses as well. So I was writing the book for somebody really looking to understand what the, the this career path is about or this profession, as well as existing secretaries as a somewhat of a camaraderie about what they're going through, I've gone through, and every other secretary is going through, but also a guide for bosses on how to treat their secretaries and see the, the world view of the secretary that, that works alongside them, what they're feeling about the way they're being treated, um, what they feel about um, the environment itself in which they're working. So the book is really written for all of the above. You have a lot of practical advice inside the covers of your book. One thing that I'm not sure is covered in universities and college campuses through the career path, things like cover letter templates. The current graduates of schools, since you are in HR, are you receiving resumes and cover letters that are appropriate or are they needing some modification if they hope to be successful? <laughs> Good cap. Yes, yes. And um, this is another reason why I titled the book The Elite Secretary. Um, it's, it's really eliciting the highest standards in, in everything that one what one does. Um, I see a lot of resumes as an HR professional and um, I am appalled at times by, um, you know, the, the lack of um, uh, of effort in, um, in how one presents oneself when one is looking for a job. Um, the way they dress and the way they present themselves and, yeah, and just and manners I, and in general. Like, yeah, and, and I, I'd like secretaries to, 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 to prove the fact that, uh, or disprove that notion that, um, you know, all they do is make coffee or, or time, mm-hmm. but that um, they're professionals um, and they're very well presented um, and well read um, and... Um, uh, and it's experienced at what they do and, 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 and 
you know, to, to get that title elite, you, it has to it start with your, your cover letter. It starts with your resume. Absolutely, Jerry. And the way you dress. You have, there's more in this book. I mean, this book could apply to any position being applied for in any corporate environment. You even talk about jewelry and how important it is to you know, settle down and not have not overdo it. You talk about wearing one ring per hand. I've seen some individuals with uh, a ring on every single finger, including their thumb. Uh, some who are happy to display tattoos and maybe nose rings or earrings in uh, odd spots on their body, piercings. D- do you run into that in the current environment? Absolutely. And you know what? Um you know, some of the the, um, the things you describe or about appearance may not matter in other positions that one is applying for. But if you are looking to work in a professional environment, uh, then the guidelines that are provided do apply. Um, you inver- Believe it or not, accept it or not, people do make judgments. <laughs> you you have um, advise you advise people on the briefcases not to carry in a paper bag or a or a or a uh, or a plastic sack with all of your resumes and material in it. Be a little more professional. Think of it as as this way: you're making a first impression as a professional, so do it in a professional yeah. manner. Sandra, in dealing with corporate leaders, what is the pitfall that they have to avoid? Um, well. They, they need to um, be cognizant of um, just ensuring that they are within the confines of appropriate behavior when working with their secretaries. Um, you don't want to cross that line, um, you know, especially when you have the relationship with, with, between a male uh, boss and secretary. Right. Um, they, there's also the tendency of um, abusing the the power of the, having a, you know, your secretary as a subordinate and abusing your power as their boss. We also live in a, lit, in a litigious society, one that likes to sue. And if someone is not performing up to standards and you have to release them from their position, there must be good documentation in place and also the, the absence of any question about their professional relationship. Absolutely. So there are rules of engagement for... Uh, for both uh, the the manager or the boss as well as the secretary, being aware of you know that personal conduct and maintaining professionalism and integrity um, is very very important. You know a lot of HR uh, professionals provide that guidance to managers on on appropriate behavior within the workplace, and you know that I do touch on in the book with respect to that dynamic of. Uh, of a, of a boss and, and their secretary and, and that relationship, maintaining those those personal boundaries is, is very, very important. Very important advice. Important book for anyone looking for a career change or wanting to get their foot in the door of a corporate environment. The title of the book, again, is The Elite Secretary. Don't be put off by that word secretary. It's not just for gals or guys. It's for anyone who wants to make a career change. The Definitive Guide to a Successful Career in Any Corporate Environment. Our author, Sandra Rohrbach, has joined me from Canada. Sandra, where do we get copies of your book? You can get copies of my book at iUniverse.com. Just type in my my name, Sandra Rohrbach, and uh, the book should be displayed on their website. 
You can also get it at elitesecretary.com, that being my, my website, and there are several links to various online retailers where you can get the book. Thank you, Sandra, for joining me. Let me just spell your name for my listeners. Sandra, S-A-N-D-R-A. C, middle initial, Rohrbach, R-O-R-B-A-K. Sandra, thank you for joining me and sharing your story. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Pocket Guide for Project Managers. Maximize people, process, and tools. Our guest joining me from the New York City area in the United States is Michael J. Bedigo. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This book is important on several levels. Uh, first of all, I like the fact that it's a pocket guide. That must mean that a guy in management or a lady in management can grab this and put it in an inconspicuous spot and refer to it. Would that be a good description? Absolutely. And that was my intention for uh, for creating a pocket guide so that you could carry it around and no need to read it from cover to cover. You could just open it from anywhere and refer to it. So, yes. Why do you have the skill to write a book like this, Michael? This is pretty ambitious. It is, but I've uh, I've been working on uh, Wall Street for about 20 years, uh, managing projects of all different size and scope and, and mission criticalness. And I think that I've collected a, a valuable amount of experience that have allowed me to distill it into some universal truths that everyone can benefit from to make their projects more successful. And for my listeners, just to give a little polish to the Apple, you have been involved with Citigroup and several other major uh, corporations that they would recognize. Are any of those outlined in your book, and not not by specifics, but by uh, inference? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I do mention Jamie Dimon in my book, and I, I do refer to some of the, uh, the larger institutions where I've managed some of these mission-critical projects. There must be a an impetus, uh, an inspiration behind uh, writing a book. That's not every man's task. You are obviously a uh, project and multitask guy. When did you begin the idea of putting this into written, a written form? It started back when I was working at J.P. Morgan, and I was charged with managing a project management office that had about uh, 20 different project managers in there. 
and they had uh, an eclectic uh, mix of experience and expertise. And I started out by trying to find some common themes that I could relate to them to make them all successful, given their differences. And it started out as a short list and it started to grow into a, big, a bigger list. And I found that there were universal truths that I could impart to my staff that would raise their effectiveness and make them all more successful. So what started out as a small list grew into a, uh, into a book over the course of a couple of years. You started out hoping to get 20 in your list of um, ideas and concepts and ended up with over 300. That's amazing. Yes. And what's interesting is that the advice that I offer is not revolutionary. It's, it's nothing outside the realm of common sense. But it is things that people tend to forget or perhaps don't recall or appreciate in their day-to-day activity as they're trying to manage a project. And my advice is to remember some fundamental concepts that will make you successful. And when you talk about fundamental concepts, uh, your book, your chapter titles are very basic, but many people in leadership forget the basics. You talk about the problems that cause, cause projects to fail, such as accountability, communication, transparency, governance, control, leadership and style tools. These are fairly common, at least in the parlance of leadership, but not necessarily implemented well. That is correct. And what I did find working in the, the many Wall Street firms that I, that I had the opportunity to participate in is that every project in every institution suffers from a problem in one of these areas to one degree or another. Uh, it may be a little bit more in, in this company and a little less over, over in this company, but to, to a certain degree, all projects suffer uh, challenges in these, in these fundamental areas. You have written this as a uh, as an opening uh, bit of information in many industries, including government. No matter what the economy is like, no matter how many hours are devoted, and how, no matter how many how bright people how bright the people are in the team, a certain percentage of projects will fail to realize the success of on time within budget delivery. Many may terminate without reaching the original intended goal. What is it about these ventures that cause such disappointing results? And what are those first steps of failure that you have discovered that that uh, sabotage projects the the initial seeds are are often planted uh, very early in project inception um, and typically what I find and, and maybe some of your listeners will, this will sound familiar to them where as a project manager you're charged with manning a highly visible project and you do all the necessary and proper things to set it up and plan for success and at the onset, everyone is engaged and, and willing and acting with alacrity. But as the project rolls on, project participants are pulled off into different directions. And quite often, many of the project participants have a day job uh, in addition to the project work that they're doing for you. And as they get pulled into their day-to-day activities, they lose that alacrity and they lose the, uh, the enthusiasm. And before you know it, your, your project is at risk for successful delivery because you don't have the team engagement that you had at, at its inception. And there are things I talk about, especially in Chapter 2, where I talk about accountability and how project managers can learn to act as the glue to keep everyone engaged and aligned. 
We live in an email world, which in some ways is a positive and some ways can be a negative, especially in project management. There is always that temptation, I have sent an email out so everybody must get it and must be on track. Absolutely right. And that's one of the things I do talk about. Um, you know, Bernard Brut said that, uh, you know, the, the thing about communication is is that the perception that it has occurred. Right. Um, but, you know, email is not communication. Um, and just because you send an email to someone doesn't mean that you communicated to them. And because so many people are going through hundreds of emails per day, there's a tendency to uh, you know, make the assumption that because I've sent an email, I've done my job in communicating. When in fact, that's the, the least effective form of communication. And when people, the, the right way to communicate is certainly use email as a tool, but you have to follow up with personal interaction and most importantly, acknowledgement from the recipient that not only did they get your message, but they understood your message. There's also the advantage of electronic communication where they can have a video conference with someone that may be um, distant from their project location or where they are managing a project and still communicate those important ideals and get that communication feedback they need. Isn't that correct? That is absolutely correct. And it's actually a benefit for a project manager these days to have the ability to um, meet with, with someone via video because when you open up communication to um, to uh, body language and facial expressions, you get much more information and data points with which you can value the validity of information that you're receiving. For example, I may send an email to a project participant and say, how are things going? Are you going to complete your tasks on time? And I get a response, yep, will do. And that, that may not be a genuine response, but if I have the opportunity to, to visually look at the project participant and ask this question in, in person, I could read the body language, I could look at the facial expressions, and I can understand, well, maybe you're not quite sure, it's just something you need help with, and that may open up a lot more information that I could work with. You have distilled years and years of leadership and project development into a hundred, well, 214 pages. What was the length of time it took to actually put your, your ideas into print, Michael? Uh, it took about two years um, between uh, sketching out the, the various data points and incorporating the, the, the stories that I did to drive home the message. And what's important is that a lot of the, the principles and, and, and maxims that I suggest are, are applicable in the real world. And that's really where I wanted to offer uh, help to, to readers. Um, they, can, they can pick up these pieces of advice and instantly implement them to raise their effectiveness. Uh, would you say your book of leadership would apply to people who are not necessarily project managers? Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, um, a project manager is a leader. But there are fundamental leadership concepts that are apropos to not only project managers, but all walks of management uh, in, in corporate America. And these are, these are aspects that anyone can apply to be more effective as a leader, whether it's project management, software development, or even running a party or planning an event. Um, they are just fundamental and universal truths that you can gain. A lot of books about management and uh, business skills. This one, why is it different? What makes it unique in your perspective? 
I believe my, my book is unique, and I intentionally took this charge when, when, I be, when I decided to write a book about management, given the fact that there are so many out on the market today and, and available to readers. But what I, what the, the tact that I took was uh, leaving out abstract theories and things that may not apply or hit home to, to readers that are operating in a day-to-day world. Um, I read tons of project management books, and they all do a wonderful job of explaining the theories and, and practices that, that are successful and, quite frankly, industry standards. Um, but, but I found a gap in the available information about how to deal with a real-world situation, such as when you're tasked to do something and then halfway through your project is given a different set of priorities and you're told, just get both of them done. Um, it happens quite a lot, and uh, I, I would bet that a lot of your listeners will find themselves in that situation. So what is it? what can you do? What can you practically do the very next day or the very next week to navigate such a situation and still remain successful? And my book is designed to help people make those decisions, and I support the the the, uh, the strategies by real-world stories that have uh, occurred and I selected those stories based on some of the most common um, problems that I've seen in different areas and common situations that I've seen to help navigate those different uh, challenges. You've also underscored your book and your writing this way as a guide to leadership, accountability and responsibility, perseverance, and professional pride. Those are the keystone foundations of project managers. Correct. Correct. But I, but I think they extend well beyond project managers and really what what one of the other themes is how do you instill that in your project participants so i may be a project manager but i may have 15 to 20 or 50 project participants who i am relying on their professional pride their perseverance and their accountability and leadership so how is it that me as the manager or the leader of a particular initiative how do i instill that in my project team and that's a very important concept that I that I review. And not only instill that, but also motivate them, keep them positive on track and on task with the, the project. Uh, there is that personal touch that has to be included in that, isn't there? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, if you if you're not a people person and can deal with people in a in a crisis situation or don't enjoy it, then you you shouldn't count yourself as a project manager or or a leader. In fact, because first and foremost, I believe that people have motivations already, and it's up to the project manager or the leader to uncover what those motivations are and maximize their potential. Only do that when you can relate to people on a personal level. Absolutely agree with that. Beautifully said. Again, the book is titled A Pocket Guide for Project Managers. I love the size of the book. The concept of the book is one that will work for leadership in any capacity. Maximize people, process, and tools. Our guest, author, Michael J. Bedigo. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of The Pocket Guide? It is available on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble um, websites. It is also, I have a Twitter page and a blog, uh, WordPress, uh, Bedigal, and uh, you can find me on Facebook. And your last name is spelled B-E-T-T-I-G-O-L-E, for those who don't have a spell checker that will find you. So Mm -hmm. thank you again for sharing that. There must be additional experience you may want to share. Is there a follow-up book to this in the works? 
Yes, actually, I am. Uh, I am planning a book more around the uh, the management. Um, uh, project management is a is a passion of mine, but also uh, is leadership. So I I intend to expand uh, beyond just project management and go into general leadership. Michael Bettigold, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is a uh, must-have for anybody in leadership, and especially if you're managing projects. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book has an intriguing title, yet shares a personal journey for a family, one that was difficult, I'm sure, for the author to share. The title is No Longer on Pedestals, and the subtitle, A Powerful Story That is Both Heartbreaking and Heartwarming, the underlying story is about the conflicts and the scandals that have plagued the Catholic Church, told from the perspective of the family who experienced it firsthand, a very unique perspective needing to be told. And our author, Carol A. Coonert, is joining me from Missouri. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is a difficult story that you have shared, and yet one that is uh, hitting the news occasionally. Carol, tell me what in these 400 pages that you have penned was so important. Why did you want to share this particular story, and what is it about? Okay, I, it's about my, my brother, who I learned was a uh, pedophile priest. He had been molesting children, and I hadn't been aware of it. It was a complete surprise to me, but I trusted the church all along that they were handling it. And, but after decades of hanging on to my faith, that the church would do the right thing. I was really shocked into reality when my brother's death was celebrated with Archbishop Burke presiding at the funeral as if Father Christian was a revered priest instead of the demoted priest, child rapist life he lived. It was at that point that I felt the need to reach out to my brother's victims to apologize for all the pain that he had brought into their lives. The church sets the example to shame and blame the victims. So the victim's true stories are never communicated to the other faithful believers of the church. Now, maybe if these members heard my story, they would feel compelled to not only reach out to the victims, but also demand an overall change for the good in the Catholic Church. 
Uh, this is a difficult story because it isn't someone that is far removed from you. It was your, your family member. When you decided to share this story, uh, who did you want to reach? What was the, the desire to appeal to, and, and who did you think would, would benefit from your story? Well, I believe that, that the story would definitely appeal to all people who are victims of sexual abuse and their families, and especially if it was perpetrated by someone in the religious life. Now, I would think that inquiring minds would be interested to learn about a pedophile priest and how his criminal behavior was dealt with by his own family and friends, as well as the church leadership. Some who cannot believe that a priest would do such a thing might read the book to find fault with it. Since this is a new angle, because it's experiences from inside the family of the pedophile, there might be some curious minds. 400 pages. There had to have been a, some research that was involved. I mean, you were... Although family member observing from the outside to some degree, how much research did you have to do, and how long did it take to complete your research and write the book? Well, I had been living this. It's not a matter of researching as much. I had all all kinds of documentation of my own that, for some reason, I just had saved over the years. And just to refer back to, so when I was the thought came to me about writing a book, I thought, well, I can do this because I have all this on hand that I can refer back to for what, what things happened and when. Well, that's, that's, okay. <laughs> that's okay. This is, a, this is a tough subject. You, when you say you have uh, documentation from way back, did that uh, go prior to your brother Norman entering the priesthood, or was it only from that point forward that you had uh, information to share? I didn't learn about this until... I, well, I was married and had children, and um, my my brother had sent me a or had called me one evening and said he was going to go on a sabbatical for six months, and I wouldn't be able to reach him during that time. He just he never said anything of what it was about. But after he got there, he sent me a letter and said that he was there working on some kind of uh, addiction or something that he had, and uh, he hoped that I wouldn't ask too many questions or anything. So that was the first, I had no idea what he was working on, what the problem was, none. And it definitely never entered my mind that he could have been a child molester. That was never in the picture. I thought possibly alcoholism or drugs or something like that. A very complicated, very complicated uh, story and complicated uh, setting to begin, to begin to confront your brother and ask him what's going on. Your sister and you also began to talk with Norman after he shared what was happening in his life. How did that, how did that conversation go? Very strange. Um, how I found out about him in the first place was through one of my children, my daughter. He had been um, taking her at the time we thought. My husband and I thought he was counseling her through some problems that she was having. Well, it turns out he was you know, doing all kinds of things with her that had we known, it would have been stopped immediately. Mm. And she finally, after years told me what was going on and that he had been molesting these young boys. So that at that point, I talked to my sister about it. We asked our other children if they were all right, and then I contacted Norman and told him we knew his secret, and we wanted to, my sister and I wanted to talk with him, and we did for, for an afternoon. We sat discussing everything, and um, I learned a whole lot of stuff at that point. He admitted a lot of things 
to me over the years. So it's not just I have documentations through letters and whatnot, but uh, as well as from the archdiocese and different bishops and priests and whatnot that have, I would write them about my concerns and they sometimes would respond, sometimes they wouldn't. That that day with my sister was, um, you know, when we sat talking with him, was really an eye-opener. And um, and at the end of it all, after he admits everything to us on his way out the door, he says, now, he, he told us that definitely you don't say a word about this to anyone because mm. you could cause scandal to the church if you if this came out in the public. So he took no, no responsibility to the fact that he did these things. That's what was scandalous. Very scary. And in addition to that, you have uh, talked about criminal investigations. Did that take place also in this incident or these incidences? The criminal investigations, yes. Um, they were... One victim did take him to court, and um, there were many victims. That, a different victim was why he was removed from ministry, finally, but then this other one came along, and he finally actually was going to take him to court. You, you have shared a lot of uh, information about the uh, investigations and also the fact that he would be taken to court. You also have shared the, the stance of those in leadership in the church, those who would be called his, uh, I guess, his bosses, his superiors, the archbishops and others. What did you discover uh, from their perspective or their reaction to what was going on? Their answer to me was always, uh, pretty much just to say, this isn't yours to worry about. We're taking care of things. They wanted me to just back off and forget about it that, and trust that they were handling everything and doing the right thing, which is what I did. I'm a Catholic, a cradle Catholic, I was, and this was instilled in me from infancy on as I grew, you know, that to um, trust the church, trust all, anyone in the religious life. They were right next to God in my eyes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they just, you know, but when they finally ended up giving my brother this funeral as a priest in good standing, and Archbishop Burke himself had the um, funeral, that was, to me, just was terribly tough. wrong. And that's when I decided I needed to speak out. You mentioned destroyed clergy records. Was that regarding your brother or just in general that you're finding that, it? That was in general. In general, that's that, happening. That was in, yes, that was in general that um, every record was to be destroyed. That, that was a big news story that they were doing that to um, that anybody that had any records at their parishes, they were to destroy those or else send them back to, the, to that place there in New Mexico and they would see that they were destroyed because that place eventually got shut down. I can't think right now when the date was, but they closed. Your brother died. Uh, how, how old was he when he passed away? He was 69. 69. Yeah. So not not an old man. I wouldn't, at least I'm getting close. I mean, I don't uh, don't like to give away my age, but that doesn't sound that old. Uh, did he die of, of unusual health uh, diseases, or was it just natural death? He No, he did have his... Um, his kidneys and liver shut down. Oh boy! But he was not sick for a long time with it. He was that whole when this first came out about him in March of of '04. He did. I found through different documentations that he had been traveling and and doing things throughout that whole year. He was going around, and it wasn't until I don't towards the very end 
he died in October, the end of October, and about a month before that or so is when he, they said he kind of thought he had, he had eaten something that didn't agree with him, and then he went in the hospital and they ran tests and everything, and and the prognosis was very poor. He wasn't going to live more than a couple more weeks. Mm. That's how quick that happened. Incredible. He was cared for by the church the entire time. You mentioned one of the victims' names, Tim. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's his real name or not, but yes. how how old was he? And uh, share a little of his life and how it's turned out. Well, he was 11 at the time that my brother abused him, actually raped him. He was an 11-year-old child. And um, he suffered for a long time with that and kept the secret. And he did get married, and he felt kind of that he had a two children, and he felt like when the, the one boy got to the age that he was when he was abused, that may have triggered him to report what happened. And then he went to the authorities and reported it, and um, he had a difficult time at the very beginning. It's very frightening for these sexual abuse victims to come forward and tell what has happened to them, because they're usually not believed. People scorn them, and, and they're made to feel even worse that he did come forward, and um, at that point, he started to um, get a little bit better along the way. It took him a long time, and when my my uh, daughter and a niece and I reached out at some point, you know, to uh, to the victims and, and to him, and we wanted to let him know that Norman was dying if he wanted to contact him or something, at that point on, he started to um, feel a little bit more hope that and, uh, but he's still, he's doing okay now. He's doing better, but... Um, but had a very difficult time is what it sounds very like. Very difficult. Sure. Yeah, these, and this is typical of all these abuse victims. My brother, for instance, told all his victims, all these young boys, and he said it to my daughter as well, that you can tell whoever you want that, about this. They're not going to believe you. You're just a kid. They'll believe me, the priest. Wow. And that's how he intimidated them. And so it took my own daughter years to be able to tell me because I'm sure she feared I wouldn't believe her. You know, this is my brother she's talking about, and he's a priest. Mm. So I really, really look up to these these survivors of these uh, clergy abuse that they find the courage to come forward and report it. Definitely. And a big part of this book is is that I want all the Catholics out there, all the membership, there's a lot of them that refuse to believe this is happening. And... They just deny it, and I think that's because it's too difficult to deal with. They don't want this. The church is very important to them, and they don't want something this horrible happening that they'd have to accept it and, and do something about it. So they just deny it. So I'm hoping that if people will read this story and and see what what I observed over the years, what happened with our family alone, this is one priest in particular, that they can... Um, perhaps get some of the truth that the church does its best to keep them from learning. Thank you for sharing your story. This is an important story for all people of faith, not just Catholics, but it is happening in the Catholic Church. Uh, At least that's hitting the news quite a bit. So if you are a person of faith or want to find out a little bit more about what has happened and transpired within the Catholic denomination, you can certainly access this book, 402 pages. You've done a wonderful job, Carol, of sharing your personal story, and I congratulate you on your your personal courage for sharing your story. Carol, this is an important read. How long did it take to complete? Well, 
this endeavor has taken me nine years. Nine years. Start to publication. As life seemed to regularly get in the way of my writing, I always put family things first, devoting only spare time to working on the book. And there were times that I would wonder if it was worth doing it. But then I'd see another priest abuse case in the news, and then I knew that my book mattered very much. And, and survivors' reports were finally being believed, and others were coming forward to report their own clergy abuse. Our silence, when people remain silent, that tells the church officials that we agree with how they are handling the clergy sexual abuse scandal. That same silence tells the victims that we just don't care about them, and that's, that's very sad. The title of the book, again, is No Longer on Pedestals. And, of course, it's the story of the uh, sexual scandals inside the Catholic Church, and in particular inside your family, how it impacted you and your brother, who was a priest at the time. Thank you for sharing with me and sharing with my audience uh, your story. How do we get copies of your book, Carol? Well, the book is available at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, BornsandNobles.com. It's online worldwide, and it's available at all bookstores. They and, can, it, and the name of my brother, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, was Father Reverend Norman Henry Christian from St. Louis, Missouri, Archdiocese. Well, thank you for sharing that and having the courage to share his name. Uh, Carol's last name is spelled K-U-H-N-E-R-T, Kunert. Carol, thank you for joining me today, and best of luck with this book and for sharing your story. Our hat's off to you, and thank you again for your service. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Parker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.